Hey y'all, it's me, Maurice. I'm going a little bit off script here. Um, as you know, we've had a very tough week here in the U.S. Um, so I didn't want to just start off the show with a bunch of ad reads. Sorry, sponsors. We'll get to you at the end. I just came back from Chicago from Podcast Movement 2016. It was a great event. I really got a lot out of it, met a lot of great people. But man, I'm not going to lie. It was so hard to keep focus on that with everything that's been going on this week here in the U.S. And it was it was hard to avoid. Uh, in my hotel room, I would just put on the Weather Channel so I wouldn't have to hear it. But then I would go downstairs into the lobby for breakfast or break out for lunch. And it's blaring on all the television, on CNN, on Fox, MSNBC. It was just really hard to avoid. You know, the senseless murders of Delron Small in Brooklyn. Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Philando Castile in Falcon Heights, Minnesota, all of this happening at the hands of the police. And then there were the murders of five police officers in Dallas, Texas. I mean, it's been a tough week. And I know at times like this, you can feel helpless, helpless not just because of the fact that these incidents happen, but because of the frequency of which they've happened over what, the past like four to five years or so, it's crazy. It's even crazier how quickly we as a society sort of keep fighting for these changes and marching and the changes just don't seem to be happening. You know, none of these incidents exist in a vacuum. So coming off the events of this week, I just wanted to speak to y'all personally, one to one or one to many, I guess. It didn't feel right for me to start off the show without addressing what's been going on. I didn't mention it this last week, uh, but the theme for this month's interviews is designed for civic innovation. Each one of this month's guests, including today's interview with Amelie Lamont, uses design and design thinking for social change, whether that's better and safer work environments, clearing up the mystery behind campaign finances, contributions, and spending, social justice issues like police brutality, and even through communicating important national policy issues like healthcare or immigration. When I was at How Design Live this year back in May, a very prominent designer whose name I will not mention told me that design and social responsibility, they just don't go together very well. <laughs> and as designers, we have a powerful ability to solve problems in ways that a lot of people don't. And I don't just mean the latest browser polyfill or the latest new cool Photoshop trick or something. I mean using our skills to help impact policies and make substantial change in our communities. So if you're looking for ways that you can get involved, ask around on Twitter, ask on Facebook, ask your fellow designer friends, ask your local AIGA chapter. Do whatever you have to do, but you know, please do something. And also just please take care of yourself. Self-care is very important in times like these with so much going on, emotions running wild, it's the summer, it's hot as hell, just, just take care of yourself out there. So thanks for letting me get that off my chest, uh, let's go ahead and start the show. Okay, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Amelie Lamont, I am a product designer based out of New York, born and raised. And I also write. I also am a co-creator for Good for POC. And I talk a lot about diversity and inclusion and design in the tech industry. Let's talk about Good for POC. You just recently launched that with uh, two people that have been sort of involved with Revision Path as well, Kat Small 
um, been on an episode, and then Jackie Alcine has been someone that we recognize through 28 Days of the Web. Talk to me kind of about that project. How did that all start? Yeah, so Jackie and Kat and I are in a Slack together, and we, like, obviously, I'm sure you've heard of the Not a Black Chair story that I post up on Medium, and Jackie and Kat and I were talking about it. We're like, oh my God, obviously, like, my situation is horrible, but how many other people of color have gone through similar but can't speak up about it I think it was either Kat or Jackie who was like wouldn't it be awesome if there were just like this place where people could go to specifically people of color could go to and just read up on companies that are good for people of color and then Kat was like yes good for PC and we were like oh is the domain available so Jackie checks to see if the domain is available it is. Then we decide to buy Good for POC in that tech, and that's literally how it started. And you just launched it in June, had a, a launch party in New York City. Yes. What's been the feedback so far from Good for POC? Yeah, a lot of people are really grateful for it. They're really excited. We've definitely been getting a lot of specifically black women who are like, oh my God, I wish this existed a few years ago when I was looking for a role in tech. So it's just, people are super, super excited about it. And we're getting ready to release the next set of companies at the beginning of July. So, I was just about to ask, how can companies um, submit their information? Is there a like an internal grading process that you have? Or how does that work? Yeah, so companies cannot actually submit their information. Um, we wanted to set up a boundary to make sure that companies aren't necessarily involved in Good for POC in a very direct way, mainly because we have a fear that it could possibly taint the results or they might have certain expectations about how we portray them on the website. So the way companies get submitted through to Good for POC is we just share a Google form currently, and we ask that people of color who work at those companies fill it out. Yeah, I can definitely see some companies I know of. I'm not naming any names, <laughs> but I certainly know some companies that would try to get on that just so they could look good. Exactly. You know, to say, oh, yeah, well, we're we're good for PLC. We're on this, this website here. Yep. <laughs> so you plan on kind of releasing new companies, I guess, in waves just as, as more people submit things? Exactly. And then for companies that are also not naming names that have been problematic according to certain things that have happened in the past few years. We put those companies aside and we try to reach out to people of color at those companies to encourage them. You know, it, we've got at least one result for this company. Do, does anyone else want to fill this out to make sure that this is balanced to see if this company is truly changing their ways or not? And I would imagine there's probably not going to be a bad for POC. I mean, I think that might be a given, right? Yeah, I think that's too easy. At least, <laughs> yeah, it's just, you just have to Google and I feel like you just easily find it. I think from my perspective, and this may be wishful thinking, but I think that if your company is not on good for POC, say after a year of us doing this, you should be worried. You should be very afraid because what that's saying that you have whatever your in terms of diversity statistics are you have a group of people of color who do not feel that your company is good for POC. They're just there for a paycheck or there's just something not going on that's well in the environment. So it's something that should really be, be thought about and examined. Yeah, I certainly looked at companies that are really talking the talk 
in terms of diversity, and then I looked at the companies that were on good for PLC. Didn't see any overlap there. Nope. <laughs> so I can see how in the future this could be something that would be a really good tool because, I mean, I mean, hell, we can mention the companies that aren't doing it right because they're, they're out there in the press. Yep. So Pinterest, for example, I know has sort of been this this marker for a lot of companies in terms of what they're doing with diversity in tech and the things that they're trying to do and the rules that they're instating. But then also, I think I saw on Fast Company, this might have been a few months ago, where even Pinterest was like, yeah, we're not getting it right either. Mm-hmm. And we're still trying to figure it out. Yep. So it's, I don't know, I guess it's a, it's still a problem, of course. Yeah, but of course. like you said, as long as, as uh, if a company hasn't been on there and it's been a year or so, that might be raising some serious questions about what exactly is happening internally. Exactly. So let's talk about not a black chair. I, I know that that happened fairly recently in terms of you releasing that. You released that post on Medium back in March. Yes. And I have to say, I mean, I really have to commend you on your bravery for doing that because I know that there are so many people of color that empathize with that story. I think just people in general probably empathize, but particularly people of color, particularly women of color, black women. Mm-hmm empathize with that story in terms of everything that you went through there at Squarespace throughout the years. What's kind of been the feedback since then? Has has it gotten, well, I don't want to say has it gotten better because you're no longer at Squarespace, yeah. but what's been the feedback that you've gotten from that piece? Yeah, the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive, which is surprising. When I released it, I was bracing myself for abuse and harassment. I actually... <laughs> changed all my email addresses. I did a scrub of my identity on the internet. Um, I did so many things because I was like, okay, I know that personally within myself, I need to release this, but I also want to minimize harassment as much as possible. But funny enough, when I released it, there were some really crazy comments on the Medium article, and they're there if, if anyone wants to go look at them. I haven't read them. Um, I got like a few comments because I still had notifications on because I didn't realize it was going to pick up steam so quickly. Mm-hmm. But overall, the the response has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, and it, it's oddly enough just led to opportunities and has given me a platform to speak up about racism and discrimination in the tech industry and to be someone that other women of color, specifically black women, can reach out to to talk about their experiences as well. So that's really encouraging. Yeah, it's good that, you know, other people can. I think even another woman, another black woman at Squarespace spoke up too, right? Yeah, another black woman, Stephanie. And there was a third black woman who, funny enough, responded, didn't write a story, but responded saying, oh, interesting, because she was in the same department that I was in. She was like, oh, yeah, interesting. I didn't realize that was happening to you, but that's why I never came into the office, because I just didn't like the energy and the vibe of the office. That was really fine, because the story could have definitely been taken as, oh, she's just this crazy black woman, this angry black woman, all these tropes and stereotypes about me making up this story. But then two other people kind of validated, like, yeah, that place was crazy. So that was really, really validating. Has Squarespace made any kind of a comment? No comments whatsoever. Hmm. Interesting. I know they they sponsor a ton of shows. They don't sponsor this show. But I know they sponsor a ton of podcasts and things of that nature. They're out there in the creative community. So it's it's interesting that this piece came out and it seems like it hasn't affected them at all or, or they've even made any sort of a comment about it. I think there is one comment from their PR person 
that was very generic, basically stating that we treat our, all of our employees with respect or something to that effect, but no, no direct comment to the story or to me or anything like that. With everything that had been going on during that time, where did you get the idea to finally just put it out there? Yeah. You know, so many people go through this type of thing and never really talk about it. Yeah. So for me, I was fired in 2014. And obviously being fired is very unexpected. But also beyond being fired, being young, I did not have any money saved us. That was really rough for me. So I had what little I had kind of survived off of that for a few months. And then after that, essentially went into homelessness, very close to it. Um, and at one point, I was many months behind on rent. And one of my friends, like, she just saw, like, the state that I was in. And she was like, you need to swallow your pride and you need to get public assistance. And I was like, I am not doing that because, you know, we have these stereotypes of what public assistance is based mm -hmm. on the stories and the lies that the media feeds us. And I was like, no, I can do this. I'm going to make this. She's like, Amelie, you're not making any money. Like you, you need help and it's okay to ask for help. So I gave in, um, got public assistance, eventually got back on my feet, got a job, started making money again, paid off all my debt, paid off my rent. And then after thinking about it more and more, I was like, I, I think I'm going to look into a lawyer because I actually looked into a lawyer when that manager made the comment directly to my face. But the lawyer that I found told me that I wouldn't have a case because all the good that she's done for me negates the negative comment that she made. And I believed him. So I didn't pursue it at that time. That was in 2013. And so last year, 2015, I figured, OK, you know what, I'm I'm going to try and raise the money for this because I at the very least, I, I want to find justice. So. Um, I set up an anonymous GoFundMe campaign, raised the money, the funds were 7500 and we put together a case, and the case, like I mentioned in the story, fell apart because I got the dates wrong, even though, funny enough, I forwarded all of the emails that I had from Squarespace to my lawyer to look through, and I guess he didn't look through them properly because they were all dated. I just personally did not want to look through the emails because I was like, okay, this is already traumatic and bringing up a lot of things that I haven't fully dealt with yet by going through with this case, but he'll handle it. But he missed some things too, so the dates were wrong. And so when the lawyer put that together and started going through the process of creating this suit, Squarespace came back and essentially said, we have screenshots of this GoFundMe campaign. And my name was not on that GoFundMe campaign. There was no identifying information. There were no names, not even fake names. There were no locations, nothing. And so what I realized is that they had been tracking me for pretty much the entire time that I had left, which kind of said to me like, oh, okay, you're aware of what you did and that what you did was wrong. And so at that point, it kind of changed from this, this fear of not wanting to say anything, not wanting to break the severance agreement, not wanting to get in trouble to this, the best way to describe it is a righteous anger. I was furious. It just felt like, how dare you? How dare you track me? Like, why can't you just let me be in peace when you know that what you did was wrong? And so the lawyer essentially said that the case had fallen apart and that there was nothing I could do, nothing that he could do. And so I was like, all right, cool. Good for you. I'm going to write this article because at that point I realized that even if they were to say, sue me, I don't have the money. <laughs> I have no 
I have no money to give. The mess that I went through in the months following me being fired, no one can put me through worse than what that was. Those were some really dark and terrible times. And so if they want to come after me, that's fine. I accept it, but I need to write this article because I know that, say, if I turn 90 years old and I'm on my deathbed, the last thing I want to know is that I allowed this company for all the horrible things that happened to me. I allowed them to get away with it. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't live with that. So I had to write the article. So that's kind of where that, that came from. I just, I felt like I had nothing to lose. So I just needed to do it. And I mean, I think, you know, just in terms of, of a cathartic release, it probably just felt good to just finally get it out. Yeah, you know? it did. But it was scary. It's funny. I was in class when I was getting ready to publish it because I, I had a very specific time that I wanted to publish it on. <laughs> I was messaging Kat in the Slack that I'm in with her. And I was like, I'm going to throw up. And she's like, it's okay. And I was like, no, Kat, I'm shaking, <laughs> shaking, shaking, finally published and just like closed my computer and I was like okay I can't think about this anymore and then it just took off so yeah very cathartic and you know like you said that story also will help other people I think not just folks that will want to go to Squarespace but just people in general to know that these kinds of things are still happening out here exactly yep now you're an active member of our Slack community Mm -hmm. for those that are listening that are not a part Definitely join revisionpath.com forward slash slack. <laughs> One thing that you mentioned, and this is probably a few months ago, and please correct me if I'm wrong on this, but you said that you were putting together a guide for wellness. Uh, I think it's like health and wellness for entrepreneurs. Is that right? More like health and wellness for people in the tech industry. Okay. Yeah. So I'm actually a certified health holistic wellness coach. I've been certified for three years now. And so even while I was at Squarespace and a little bit after my, I guess you could say like my, one of my past lives is that I was a health and wellness coach. So I would take on clients and help them figure out how to, I guess you can kind of say be at one with their eating habits, whatever their struggles might be and be at one with their, so that they can have a better relationship with food. And you're still working on that guy? Yeah, still working on it. It's, I kind of want it to be a guide for young people in tech who want to eat better, but may not necessarily have the funds to do it, don't want to spend all of their money, I say Whole Foods, to do it, or on exotic ingredients like acai or dragon fruit or things like that. So that's kind of where I'm at with it. And are you still kind of doing health and wellness coaching now or no? No, not, not anymore. I realized that in terms of health and wellness coaching, it was very draining because I, I'm a very empathetic person. And what I noticed is as a coach, at least as a wellness coach, you're dealing with people who may have very dark views about their bodies and themselves. And what I noticed would happen is when I would have a client, I would kind of absorb the heaviness that they're having, like trying to walk them through this darkness that they're experiencing about themselves to kind of pull them out of it. And as I walked them through that darkness, I realized that I was taking a lot of that on too. So like I would have like, I remember one client, she just wanted to be healthy. She just really wanted to to break her bad relationship with food and, and not hate food, not have like a love-hate relationship with food. And I remember one time we just had, we had a very deep conversation, but it just, 
it was just so sad. Like we went through her history. And then after I got off the phone with her, I was, I felt really sad too. I was just down for the rest of the day. And I was like, okay, I'm going to continue. And I'm going to, I'm going to continue with the program for you. But that was kind of when I realized that I don't, I don't think I could do this anymore, but I, I can definitely write. I love writing. So that's kind of where the guide comes in. I could see that though, still being a very helpful thing. Yeah, definitely. Especially now, you know, with, with people talking about things like standing desks and ergonomic chairs. I mean, certainly there's that focus on making sure that at least what I can tell, there's a focus on making sure tech workers are more productive in that way. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, health and wellness definitely feeds into that oh, yeah, also. Definitely. And I, I don't think food and health and wellness is about deprivation. Like if you want to have an ice cream sundae, you can have an ice cream sundae. No one's saying that you should get rid of those. I think what I'm most interested in is balance. So for example, if I'm someone who doesn't eat healthy regularly, I can't necessarily expect you to go from eating, say, junk food to eating a green smoothie every single day. That's insane. Or the supermarket and buy organic ingredients or greens that you normally wouldn't buy. So for me, it's more like baby steps. So maybe every single day eating a cheeseburger. Okay, maybe one day a week, replace that cheeseburger with a salad and maybe replace it with greens instead. And maybe it doesn't have to be fresh greens. It could be greens from a can as long as you're eating greens of some sort, like just finding ways to incorporate things that you normally wouldn't incorporate, but in baby steps and not pushing anyone to change if they're not ready to change. What are things that you do for self-care? Oh, so many things. I love yoga. So I'm always going to yoga, uh, heated yoga, which is kind of intense, but very, very relaxing. I also meditate. I also love drawing. Sometimes when I'm not feeling super lazy, I'll go out for runs. (laughs) And I definitely, I am into green smoothie camp. I love green smoothies. So, yeah. Nice, nice. Yeah. Oh, and then I also have a self-care Sundays. I should trademark that so no one steals it. Um, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But self-care Sundays is like the day where I like move all my nail polish and I do my nails. I get a little facial because I have like a steamer. Like I'm in a spa, but I'm not really in a spa. I'm just on the carpet in my living room. But I feel good about it. I mean, you know, you have to you have to get it in where you can. I totally understand that. <laughs> True. <laughs> On your website, um, I was looking at your about page, and one thing that you mentioned that I thought was really interesting is that your dream is to become a design anthropologist. Yes. And we've had a design anthropologist on the show. Dory? Uh, Dory Tunstall. Yeah. Yes. What drew you to design anthropology? It's funny because Dory was the one who drew me to design anthropology. I was reading Debbie Millman's book. I believe it's called Brand Thinking and Other Things. I might have the name mm-hmm. wrong. But in that book, I was going through and I was reading about all these different people weighing in on what they believe a brand is. And it was pretty insightful. And then I got to this section of this woman, this Dory Tunstall. And I was like, okay, cool. Title, design, design anthropologist. And I was like, uh... What's a design anthropologist? And then I read through the chapter, and by the end of the chapter, I was like, oh, my God, that is literally what I am meant to do on this planet. Um, So ever since reading that book uh, a few years ago, I've been 
researching as much as I can. I actually, um, Debbie Millman posted on Twitter a few months back that she was having office hours and I freaked out and I booked the office hours with her. And <laughs> all I did during those office hours was just talk to her about Dorian. Like that's, that's literally what happened. <laughs> so she's like, okay, here's Dory's information. Why don't you just email her and ask her for more information about possibly, you know, furthering your education with design anthropology. And that's exactly what I did. So Dory was amazing and she, me some suggestions for schools I can look into getting a master's in anthropology. That's awesome. Yeah, she was in Australia, but I think she's now since moved back here to the U.S. Yeah, that's what I've heard too. Yeah. No, that's great. That's so interesting that you got inspired about that from from her and that I've also kind of had her her here on the show as well. Are you starting to kind of go along that route educationally now? Yeah, definitely. So I was at FIT Fashion Institute of Technology here in New York City doing advertising and marketing communications. And I ended up switching to SUNY Empire, mainly because FIT would not take into account professional experience, but SUNY Empire does. So I'll be able to graduate faster because I, the key here is that I just need to finish up my bachelor's. And once that's finished, then I can quickly move on to the master's wherever I decide to go for that. Okay. Now, based on your, your past educational experience, and I saw this from doing some looking on your LinkedIn profile, mm-hmm. and I thought it was really interesting that you started off in something that was more technical and then kind of gravitated toward the creative. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So for me, growing up, I was always creative. My dad was really creative. My dad was kind of crazy. He was a DJ and he liked to sew and he loved computers and then he loved to paint, like loved to cook. Um, so all of my creative energy I got from him, and I did that as a kid growing up as well. And when I got to high school, I was in choir and marching band um, and art club, all of these things, oh, a drama club as well. And I told my mom, like, yeah, I definitely want to go to school for illustration. And like it says on my website, I am a first-generation Jamaican-American. So my mom came from Jamaica to you know, typical immigrant story to make a better life for herself and for her children. And so for me (laughs) to come to her and say, hey, mom, I want to be an illustrator. She's like, no, Mm -hmm. no, no, you don't. And I was like, I don't. So when I graduated high school, I was 17 years old. And so being 17, I can't get a loan on my own. The loan would have to go through my mom. So it was very clear that If I wanted to go to college, I wouldn't be able to do illustration. It would have to be in something that would make me a lot of money, like being a doctor or a lawyer or going into business. So I visited Drexel and I was like, okay, business and engineering. Cool. I'll do that. Got there, did it, was great, was at the top of my class, but it wasn't illustration. And so I ended up leaving, tried going to the University of the Arts in Philadelphia still just wasn't happy. And it turns out I just was not happy in, in Philadelphia. Ended up switching to the School of Visual Arts. And at the School of Visual Arts, I was so happy. I was in the graphic design program, taking some illustration classes. It was awesome. And then some really big personal life events happened and I had to take time off. And when I was ready to go back, I was like, mom, don't worry about it. I'll pay for it. It's fine. Not realizing that Each semester was about 40,000 plus a semester. 
Wow. So I was like, nope, I can't, can't afford that. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And then that switch, of course, came to you when you wanted to just then decide to focus on your art. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's funny because the reason I ended up at FIT is because when I was at Squarespace, I was so miserable that I figured, okay, well, I know I want to be a designer by trade, but I've talked to employees within the company and they've all told me that there's no possible way I can be a quote-unquote, air quotes, real designer unless I have a degree, even though outside of the company and before that company, I was designing websites, I'm designing flyers, all kinds of stuff. But I just, I guess I kind of just got it in my head that I needed to have a degree to be a designer, which I now know is not true. So I was just so miserable in customer care that I figured that maybe if I, if I get a degree in advertising and marketing communications, it's a two-year degree at FIT, then I can switch into the marketing department at Squarespace and then somehow move my way into design. And of course, I got fired, so that didn't happen. So after I got fired, I no longer had the resources to continue paying for school, so that had to be put on hold. So my education has definitely been been all over the place because of weird circumstances or just not finding the right fit. But in the meantime, though, you've gained a lot of good experience just from working and you're, you're also a mentor as well. Yeah, definitely. Talk to me about your mentorship experiences. What have those been like? Do you mean mentorships that I provide or a mentorship that I've received? We'll go with mentorships that you provide first. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the mentorship that I provide currently, I'd say the biggest one is at the Startup Institute. So at Startup Institute, I am a mentor for the design track, and I often teach the intro to design for the web for the New York court of the Startup Institute. And now, you know, to kind of flip that around, what about you? Who are some, uh, some mentors that you've had that have really helped you out? It's interesting because I, I always like flip back and forth between the word mentor and advisor. I think I personally like the word advisor better because I feel like there okay. are a lot of young designers who use the word mentor. They're like, oh my God, that person's my mentor without really telling the person. Like I, I've had that happen to me. Like sometimes someone will be like, you're my mentor. And I'm like, I, I don't, I don't know you. <laughs> what? <laughs> so I don't want to be that person. So I would say that people that I would consider advisors or people who I really admire for their knowledge, definitely Kat Small, definitely Christy Tillman, Mina Markham. Yeah, I'd say those are the three people who I really look to for. Oh, Jasmine Greenaway, she's also a developer. Yeah, those are the people that I really look to for guidance. With all the varied experiences that you've had in tech, the good and the bad, mm -hmm. what have those experiences taught you in general? I would say those experiences have taught me to be myself and to, might sound like a little cheesy, but to essentially never let anyone stand in my way. As much as the experience at Squarespace was not good, I don't think I would be the same person I am now if that experience didn't happen. That experience needed to happen. And I know that there are a lot of people who may think this sounds really fluffy, but I'm a firm believer in the idea that everything happens for a reason. And so I think that especially as a designer, you need to have really 
challenging moments in your life that push you to grow because those challenging experiences give you a new perspective and can also be translated into your work as a designer because you're designing for people from varied backgrounds and experiences. And the more experiences that you have that are varied, the better a designer that you become. I totally agree with that. I know that there are certainly designers that I guess follow this very strict path of they went to this one school, now they're at this company, and that's the breadth of their experience. That's it. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas if you really went out there and lived and experienced, you just have such a greater pool to pull from for this kind of stuff. Exactly. Now, with all the mentoring that you've done, you know, that you spoke about before, what advice would you give to someone that wants to start out in this industry, knowing what you know now? Yeah, I mean, I would say the biggest piece of advice I would give to someone starting out in this industry is to speak up. If there's something that you want, you should definitely go after it. But you should also make sure that you acknowledge the people who came before you and reach out to them for help too. Make sure that you build connections and get to know those people because the worst thing that could happen is is that if you're someone who's young or just starting out in the industry, the worst thing you could do is pretend that you've got it all figured out. I've been doing design for the past 10 years. I definitely don't have it figured out. And even though I've been doing design for 10 years, I haven't been a product designer for 10 years. I've been doing website design. I've been doing graphic design. And even still, there are people who would say that I'm not a real designer because I haven't gone to school. And so that's a whole other thing. But I think that it's just really important to understand that there's always still so much more to learn and to Mm -hmm. not be afraid to reach out to people and to build connections because that's what will really help you to get far. Yeah, the whole legitimacy of what does or doesn't make a designer is so silly, especially when it boils down then to education. Mm -hmm. You know, it's even really just silly to think about in that respect because Honestly, even the educational part is something that is very new to this industry that has really only come about maybe in the past 10 years. I mean, when I was, you know, coming up in like the mid 90s, going to college and stuff, everything was Mm self-taught. You either reverse engineered something that you saw on the web or maybe you picked up a book where they had like a compendium of all of the HTML tags. And that's how you found out what to do. So this this over-reliance on education, particularly when curriculums are very new and this industry is changing very fast, feels kind of silly. I completely agree. I understand, though, what you mean about the legitimacy of just having the degree, because when you go to jobs, that's what they want to see, that you've got the degree in this field. But what does it mean after a few years if that's the case? Exactly. And I mean, for me, the only reason, like if I could find a way to skip the bachelors and just go for the design anthropology, I absolutely would. But I've, I've been Googling all day and I have not found one yet. So if you know, (laughs) let me know, hook a sister up because I I really, I don't think the degree is necessary. And I've had friends who know me and they're like, why are you? And I'm like, no, no, I don't, I don't really want the bachelors. I just want to learn more about design anthropology, but apparently I can only do that at a master's level. So I have to get a bachelor's. I know what you mean. That's That can be frustrating. Yeah. What does it mean to you to be a designer today, like in this modern age? What does that mean to you? Hmm. I would say to be a designer means to be someone who is open to solving the problems of others. I think that design is problem solving, and I think that it's problem solving 
using creative solutions for complex problems. I think it's really easy to get caught up in the aesthetics. And it's funny because I've gotten into debates with designers about this. There are some designers who are like, yeah, but aesthetics are important. And I agree. I think they're important too. But I don't know. I, I'm a firm believer that while aesthetics are important, especially with the emphasis that has come up in the past few years in terms of aesthetics around design, I think mm -hmm. function is far more important. I mean, if you think about it, even the basic things that we use every day, actually quite literally almost everything that we use every day is designed. If I'm eating a meal, I don't really care about what my fork looks like as long yeah. as the fork can shovel the food into my mouth. <laughs> That's all I care about. <laughs> and so like, yeah, you know, yeah, it, it would be nice to have like a really nice fork with a beautiful, intricate design on it that's like, it's got a nice weight to it. But ultimately, as long as it does the job of helping me to eat my food, then the aesthetics are secondary. So I'm a, I'm a really big believer that a designer is someone who's solving problems, complex problems, using creative solutions, and the aesthetics should be secondary to, say, the form and the function. Yeah, I, I tell people that same thing about design. Like, you know, even though people aren't intrinsically designers and that they went to school for it or studied it we all know bad design when we encounter yep. it and so that means that at least our design senses to some respect are innate to the point where we can realize when something has sort of gone against the grain in that way exactly what advice has stuck with you the longest hmm i'd say the advice that has stuck with me the longest is fear is excitement on pause I can't even remember where I learned that phrase. I, I, I'm pretty sure I learned it from when I was a health coach and another health coach told, told it to me. Yeah. But I remember when she told me that, I just kind of looked at her and I was like, huh, <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> and that was a few years ago. That was almost three or three or four years ago. And I, I didn't understand what it meant. And then as I've gotten older, I thought about it more and more. And I'm like, yeah. That does make sense. And kind of the way that I've interpreted it is to mean that, you know, we're often afraid of so many things around us, be it an opportunity or taking advantage of something that comes your way or even just doing something, anything. And fear doesn't have to be this thing that we're like, oh, my God, fear, it's shown its ugly face again. I, I hate it. Just go away. I wish I never had fear again. Fear is something that we should coexist with. And so when you take it and kind of spin it as fear being excitement, you've put a pause on it, just press play so you can like move forward and work with the fear instead of fighting against the fear. Work with the fear. I like that. Mm -hmm. I like that. If you never got like your spark for design, like I know you mentioned, you know, you were really a creative kid and things like that. What do you think you'd be doing? I'd be making comics. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's what I did before I got into design as a kid. I was super into anime and cartoons. I mean, I still am into anime and cartoons, but my biggest thing was the Powerpuff Girls. And I used to run home every day after school to watch Toonami so I could see the next episode of Dragon Ball Z where they would spend 30 minutes just screaming at each other until the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> I love Dragon Ball Z, by the way. Obsessed. And so I would actually make Dragon Ball Z times Powerpuff Girls comics where 
like Blossom and Buttercup and Bubbles would be like fighting around Townsville. And then they would like meet Goku and then they would like team up with Goku and like beat the crap out of Frieza. I don't know. I, I was really into comics as a kid. So, yeah. I, I think I would probably be doing comics too. Yeah. Maybe not as an artist. I'm not a, the best artist, but certainly as a writer, I think I would. Mm-hmm. I've mentioned this on the show before. Like I've had this idea for a graphic novel and characters and stuff that has just been sort of percolating in my head, probably for the better part of 15 years. Mm-hmm. And I just haven't had the time or the space to really fully dive into it. Cause I know that when I do, I'm going to dive into it like 150%. Yep. <laughs> because I've been thinking about it so long and you know, it's finally happening. I know I'm going to put everything into it. So I just, I haven't done it yet, but I, I certainly empathize with you there. Yeah. Well, whenever you do do it, I will totally read it. I'll be first in line. nice i appreciate that how would you kind of describe your own personal design style do you have any sort of influences and things because i i certainly have have you know experienced your vitality and creativity within the slack community so i'm just kind of interested how does that kind of translate to your design style yeah i think sometimes i struggle as a designer because i especially with the labels that we have. So yeah, I'm a product designer, but sometimes like people ask me like, well, what kind of product designer? Like, do you focus more on research or interactions or visual? And I definitely enjoy the research side more. So I often try to take a lot of my health coaching experience into the research aspect in terms of asking the right questions and how to make people feel comfortable. But when it comes to say the visual design style of it, I always struggle because every time when I'm designing, I mean, of course I'm human, so I'm definitely influenced by either trends or things that I'm seeing currently within design. But then I'm also always, I feel like sometimes I'm too empathetic as a designer. So sometimes I'll get stuck on even just colors because I'm like, but but what if there's a colorblind person and they can't even see the design? So I think my design, it's, I I guess the word that I would use to describe it, it's very aware. I'm always trying to think of how the people who are interacting with it, how it will affect them, be it negatively or positively. Usually more on the negative side because I try to think of disabilities and accessibility a lot on my end. But if I were just talking about it on a pure, purely aesthetic level, I guess I could say I really like clean designs, which is not a very descriptive word. I love lots of white space. I think I'm one of the few designers who really loves serif fonts. I mean, I really love serif fonts. Mm -hmm. I like try to even push them in projects and then I'll get clients who are like, what is this serif garbage? And I'm like, oh, sorry. I just (laughs) thought that it would. (laughs) So I really love serif fonts. Yeah, just very clean, very simple. I try not to put too much I guess you can say aesthetic flair in my designs. I really, I'm a big believer on focusing on the content. So if you like check out my website, you can see like it's, it's very simple, straightforward. The focus is the typography and the content and the imagery. So nice, nice. I want to congratulate you. I know this is something that I think happened a few months ago, but you were invited to speak at the White House. Yes, thank you. Talk to me about that. Yeah. So after I wrote Not a Black Chair, I got this mysterious message from someone on Twitter because I had my DMs open 
And <laughs> someone was like, yeah, do you want to come speak at the White House? And I was like, I, I mean, yes, but who are you? Um, <laughs> and so she was like, yeah, you know, just give me your email address and I can send you details. And I was like, uh, okay. So I sent her my email address and my info and it turned out to be legit. So it was for something called the Brioxy, B-R-I-O-X-Y, Innovators of Color Summit. And mm -hmm. the person who runs Brioxy, their name is Cole. And essentially Cole was a Presidential Innovation Fellow. Oh no, actually a White House Fellow. Cole has done some amazing, amazing, amazing things for the people of color community, specifically the black community. And a lot of She's done a lot of work for the black youth as well. And so what was awesome is that she was putting on this summit because she has ties to the White House at the White House. And I was invited to speak on a panel about the tech industry and about diversity. And it was nice because we dove in to how a lot of people of color within tech tend to be in service related jobs, not in I guess you can say the higher echelon type of jobs, say as engineering or design or product management. So that was a really interesting discussion to have. Um, and it was cool because it was invite only. There were only 100 people of color invited from all across the country. And I just, it was just an amazing experience. It was awesome. So you got a chance to sort of network with people and fellowship and stuff like that? Yeah, it was great. And it's, I mean, obviously, like after I wrote Not a Black Chair, I learned that I'm not the only one with the story, but it was just nice to hear people from other industries as well talking about their struggles, which was really beautiful and amazing. Oh, nice. Yeah. There's a, a recent post that's on your site. It's called I'm New to Tech. Mm -hmm. And you sort of talk about, you know, juniors in tech. And, you know, I've certainly experienced companies that want someone to just kind of hit the ground running mm -hmm. as soon as they start. There's no time for onboarding. You know, you're, it's kind of a baptism by fire sort of thing and you know companies are going to keep messing up if they don't cultivate really that next that next generation of designers that are coming up mm -hmm. what do you think companies should do to help attract and keep juniors in the field i would say what they should do is be open to having junior roles i think the biggest thing that confounds me when it comes to companies not wanting to hire juniors and only wanting to hire seniors is that seniors were once juniors too. <laughs> mm -hmm. So if you only hire seniors, I mean, eventually the seniors will become actual real life seniors and they're going to want to retire. So what are you going to do if you're not cultivating the people, the generation behind them? And I don't think that they're looking that far ahead. I think what they're looking for is immediate return so if I can just have a senior now, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll eventually focus on the juniors, but that eventually never comes. So I would say being open to creating those roles and being willing to cultivate and to mentor juniors. And I know oftentimes the rebuttal to that is that, well, we don't have the right people to mentor this person. And that's, that's a fair and valid assessment. But at the same time, I think it's more of a fear of making mistakes. And you're going to make mistakes, regardless of whether you're a mentor, whether you're a senior, like those mistakes are what help you to grow. I think there are some very basic guidelines that you can follow to help a junior to grow without being 
too afraid of making mistakes that will destroy their career. I don't, I don't think it's that serious unless you have truly malicious intent. I think it's more just of a fear of not wanting to take a chance because it, it does take time and energy and work to grow someone from a junior into a senior. And they want people to do that themselves because that quote unquote shows initiative, which I don't agree with. Yeah. And, you know, these companies are not loyal out here at all. No, they're not. I mean, so, it's funny because I always like say that and I caution people about that. If you really think about it, a corporation, like the root of corporation is corpus, Latin for body, right? And mm-hmm. so in yeah. the U.S. government, a corporation is seen as an entity. Like it's technically seen as like a, a person, like a corporate person, but still like a person. So it has its own rights, its own like sets of liabilities and rules and regulations and ultimately yes there are people that work within that body but ultimately everything that people do within that body is for the good of the whole body so if you're not a good fit then clearly it's much easier to get you out of the body than to restructure the entire body and i don't think people understand that because i think people have this desire to want companies to be more human or to be more kind and loving. And I'm like, no, it's a cold, hard cash earning machine. What feeling are you looking for? (laughs) So, yeah. yeah. I really do want to see more companies do that, whether it's an internship or it's an apprenticeship. I just feel like that's so necessary. This, this reminds me so much of this AIGA symposium piece that they did back in the early nineties, like, I think it was like 91 or something. And some of the same things that they mentioned are things that you, you know, just mentioned now, like some type of a, a job program or something for opportunities so people can know kind of what's, you know, what's coming up. Mm-hmm. And I know we're talking a lot about kind of diversity in tech and tech and design sort of play together in a way. You know, they're not the same, but they certainly are not totally separate. Mm-hmm. So I can see a lot of this also extending over into that, you know, community as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think the biggest part is that in order for companies to want to to want to invest in that, they have to see some kind of monetary value from it, which mm-hmm. is kind of where I was going with the corporate entity because unless they know that there's some way in which they can make money from doing that, like there has to be a return in the investment and it, it sounds kind of gross and icky, but that's really what it is and I don't think anyone has quite succinctly explained to companies in a way that has quote unquote caught steam to make companies want to invest in them to know that, Oh, if I invest in a junior, I'll definitely be making some really great returns off of this junior in the future. Yeah. Where do you see yourself in the next five years or so? In the next five years or so, I see myself running my own agency maybe, or my own consultancy Hopefully with my master's degree in design anthropology. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So just to kind of wrap things up, Amelie, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Yeah. So if you go to my website, which is www.amelielamont.com, A-M-E-L-I-E-L-A-M-O-N-T.com. You can also find me at Twitter at Amelie Lamont. And if you like Instagram, even though I barely post anything, you can find me on Instagram. Same thing, at Amelie Lamont. All right. Well, Amelie, this has been a really great conversation. I mean, I, I really wanted to, you know, of course, find out more about you and about your work and everything like that. And I really appreciate that you are being such an outspoken 
advocate for diversity in tech. I think that's something that, I mean, I'm not going to say that it's a common thing these days, but certainly you're starting to see more and more people speak up. But I really appreciate just kind of your vocalness about this on Twitter in general and how it also informs the work and the projects that you do. So you're not just talking the talk, but you're walking the walk as well. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. And thank you for everything that you're doing too with Revision Path and the Slack. The Slack community is a savior. So everyone listening should totally join that. <laughs> Thoughts of love are in and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Amelie Lamont and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Amelie and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook invests in design. They care deeply about how their design team might do their best work. And that manifests itself in a number of different ways, such as building tools like origami, sharing what they've learned on Medium, and by giving back to the design community. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. Their attitude may be playful, but their business is serious. Sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better emails. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domain. Search for a few keywords and Hover will show you the best available options across all the 400 plus domain extensions out there. Ready to get started? Save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, please do me a huge favor. Leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It only takes a minute or two, and it really, really does help the show by bumping us up in those iTunes rankings for design podcasts. Seeing some new five-star reviews would really make me happy leading up to our 150th episode at the end of this month. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio here in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge levels start at just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.